invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 87, verses 1 through 7, for our Old Covenant reading, a psalm that speaks of the uh, glorious church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's hear the word of God, Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loved the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God, Selah. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the people, this one was born there, Selah. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Truly the refrain there that we should pick up as we begin here uh, looking at God's word is that this one was born there. That is our promise from God. And I would like you to turn over for our New Covenant reading in Romans chapter 8. I'd like to read verses 12 through 17. We're going to be looking at adoption and the Apostle Paul speaks of that here. I used to tell my congregants in Limington OPC, in Limington, Maine, that we all like to live in Romans 8, don't we? We all like to live there. But let's read verses 12 through 17. And again, God's word for us. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Thank God for his word and his truth for us this morning. Let's have just a short word of prayer. Father, as we again look to your word, we ask that you would touch our very hearts and souls, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, a heart to believe the truths that are in your word concerning all that is ours in Christ. Lord, bless this time together. May it bring glory and honor to your holy name, for we ask it in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. My text this morning is from Galatians chapter 4. If you'd like to turn to Galatians, and I would like to read that as well. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and really we'll be looking mostly at verses 6 and 7. But let's again hear the word of God, Galatians chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts saying, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it was just about four years ago uh, at Lymington OPC that they allowed me to take a short sabbatical. Um, and part of my study time during that time had to do with this doctrine of adoption. That is our adoption into the family of God. And this is actually a very important doctrine for us as Christians. But it's not one that's often preached, not one that's often taught today. Uh, I know I'd never preached on it before, and I'd never heard a sermon on adoption when I was growing up that I can remember. Uh, And even during the Reformation, the doctrine of adoption wasn't mentioned a whole lot. Not because it wasn't important, of course, but because they they were wrestling with weightier matters of recovering the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ and all of its fullness and all of its power. Uh, Some have even said that, you know, the Puritans didn't even do that much with the doctrine of adoption either. But while they probably didn't spend a lot of time writing on adoption, uh, much, strictly not as much as they did on the doctrines of justification and sanctification and assurance, I think it would be misleading to say that they didn't have anything to say of real significance about the doctrine of adoption. After all, it was the Westminster Divines, they were the first ones to include a separate chapter on the subject of adoption uh, in our confessional standards. You find it in uh, chapter 12 of uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. You also find it in the questions of, uh, on adoption in the uh, larger and shorter catechism. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 34, reads, what is adoption? Well, the answer is adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we're received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. That's the children's version, you remember, right? The larger catechism, the one where adults are supposed to know here, uh, is question and answer 74, the larger catechism. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of the free grace of God in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, whereby all those who are justified are received into the number of his children, have his name put upon them, the spirit of his son given to them, are under his fatherly care and dispensation, admitted to all the liberties and privileges of the sons of God, made heirs of all the promises and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. That's quite a definition, isn't it? When you try to put all those things together and think about those. Now, actually, many of the Puritans actually did write some discourses on adoption. They're not really available in our day much because they weren't reprinted after the Puritan era. And and there were even some Scottish and Dutch divines who wrote at length on adoption. But then again, their, uh, their writings were not... Uh, widely circulated either. However, I would recommend a recent book uh, by Dr. Joel Beakey called The Puritans on Adoption. That is uh, well worth reading. And it was part of my study uh, when I was on my sabbatical. But it's my desire today to try to show you the transforming power and the great comfort that is yours as a child of God 
as it's found here in this doctrine of adoption. And so my theme will be that the doctrine of adoption offers transforming power and great comfort to, those of, to, the, to us as the children of God. This morning we're only going to look at the transforming power uh, of the doctrine of, uh, of adoption. We're going to look at the greatness of our adoption in Christ, the definition of our adoption in Christ, and the power of our adoption in Christ. Those three things. That's the transforming. It's great. We're going to define it, and we're going to look at the power. Tonight, Lord willing, we're going to look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and we're going to look at the great comfort that we find in the doctrine of adoption. And we'll look at the benefits, the responsibilities, and the application, again, of our adoption in Christ. So let's begin uh, by looking at the transforming power of the doctrine of adoption by considering the greatness of of this doctrine for us. Excuse me. Now, if you do read through what many of the Puritans did write about the doctrine of adoption, you will find they like to stress the superlative value, which means this is the greatest of the great. But they also like to stress the surprising wonder of this little-known doctrine of adoption. And so they would speak of its greatness, of its excellence, And what that means is that this is definitely a subject that's worthy of our study and worthy of our meditation. We need to meditate on our adoption in Christ. Uh, Consider what William Perkins said about the believer's adoption in his commentary on Hebrews 11. He said, a believer should esteem his adoption as God's child to be greater than, and here's the quote, greater than the child or heir of any earthly prince. Since the son of the greatest potentate may also be a child of wrath. But you see, the the child of God, by grace, has Christ to be his eldest brother, with whom he's a fellow heir of heaven. He has the Holy Spirit also for his comforter, and he has the kingdom of heaven for his everlasting inheritance. Now think about what Perkins is saying there about your adoption into the family of God. You could be a child of the most powerful king who has ever reigned upon earth. You could be a child of the richest person who's ever lived. But at the same time, you could also be a child of wrath. And what good would all that power, what good would all those riches do for you in the long run? Because it would not help you on the day of judgment. If you're a child of wrath, you'll be cast into the lake of fire. And all that you enjoyed here on this earth, it will be of no value. It will be of no help, no merit for you and on that terrible day. But what if you're a child of the king of kings? What if you're a child of the Lord of lords? How much different will that day be for you? Perkins goes on to list uh, four things that make all the difference in the world when it comes to our adoption in Christ. These are brief here. First of all, you have Christ for your elder brother. That's what we read there, right? He's the one who goes before you. He's the one who has done everything that is necessary for your salvation. Second, you have Christ as your joint heir, right? You are joint heirs with Christ. Which means as you are united to Christ by faith, everything that belongs to him belongs to you. 
You inherit with him everything that he inherits from his father. And when you think about that, that makes being an heir of the most powerful, the most richest person on this earth, that makes that to be like nothing. Actually, to be less than nothing. Because really, the best that this world can offer you is rubbish compared to what is yours in Christ. Third, you have the Holy Spirit who dwells within you as your comforter, as your helper, as your guide. The one who will be with you and who will see you through this life until you're with the Lord in glory that that he has promised you. He will make it sure. And then fourth of all, you have an inheritance that is absolutely beyond belief. All the riches of Christ are yours. Eternal life and heaven and so much more. And you will spend eternity with the God who loved you and gave himself for you. Do you want to know what Perkins grieved over? What he lamented? It was the fact that so many people fail to realize all that God has for them as his children. And his point was, we need to take these promises of God's word to ourselves. We need to take them experientially into our hearts, into our very souls. Perkins put it this way. Uh, at earthly performance. Men will stand amazed, but seldom will you find a man that is ravished with joy in this, that he's a child of God. Think about that, right? People make a big deal out of someone who wins the lottery. I mean, we can't even imagine how much money that gets to be, right? right? Or someone who's just the heir of a great fortune in this world, right? We're, we're, we're just amazed at that. And yet, beloved... There is nothing greater that could ever be said about you than this. That you are a child of God. There is nothing greater than that in this life. Listen to the awe and the wonder that we read of in the Apostle John's word in 1 John 3, 1. Behold, he says. That means, look, pay attention here. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called what? The children of God. We're going to look at that tonight. You know, see, our adoption in Christ should absolutely amaze us. It should astound us. The Most High God, the Creator of the universe, He's not just the God, He's not even just our God, He's our Father. And we are his beloved children, his forever blessed children. Now we should also understand just really how comprehensive the doctrine of adoption is. Generally in the Ordo ordo Salutis, the, the order of salvation, we find adoption. It comes between justification and sanctification. You can look at the Westminster Confession of Faith. You can see it that way in the catechisms as well. It fits in the middle. And that makes sense logically. There are ties between justification and adoption, just as there are ties between sanctification and adoption. But there have been others who have looked at this great and gracious doctrine of adoption, really the whole of our salvation. That's what they say this is. It it comprehends all that there is of soteriology, the, the doctrine of salvation. This is it. Adoption, 
As one Puritan put it, though sometimes in the Holy Scriptures our sonship is but one of our privileges, yet very frequently in the Scriptures all that believers do obtain in Christ in this world and in the world to come, here and to eternity, all of it is comprehended in this one thing, that they're made children of God. Now, this is the promise of the covenant of grace. A covenant, a promise made in the Old Testament, the New Testament. I will be their father and they will be my children. We read in 2 Corinthians 6.18, and the apostle is quoting, he's alluding to the Old Testament, but he says this, quoting that, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And then we read that same promise in Ephesians chapter 1 earlier in verses 4 and 5. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. According to the good pleasure of his will. And so while we might look at adoption as just kind of one part of salvation, there there is a sense in which it really comprises the whole of our salvation in Christ because it is the fulfillment of that promise of the covenant of grace that comes a reality for us in the coming of Christ to save us from our sins and not just save us from our sins, but to bring us into the family of God. As we read in the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Born of God. And so, beloved, in Christ, know this, you are a child of God. I mean, I hope you see the the greatness, the the unsurpassing value of this doctrine of adoption. Because here we see the wondrous love of God to sinners like ourselves. Here we see the undeserved grace of God to sinners like ourselves. You know, the definition of grace is really so much greater than we normally think of it. I mean, we often think of grace that, you know, it's kind of like kindness and mercy but it is so much greater. And we see its greatness here in this adoption that is ours in Christ. Think, think of it this way. Think if a beggar came to your house. Mercy would be giving the beggar something to eat. Mercy always presupposes misery. And when we reach out to those who are in their misery and we help them in their need, we're being merciful. But grace is so much greater. Grace goes much further. Because as we see here, grace extends to our adoption in Christ. Because grace is when the beggar comes to your door. And you know this guy. I mean, he is the worst kind of sinner imaginable. He's lied about you. He's lied to you. He's refused to follow your good advice. He's used your name for a curse. And when this person comes to the door, beggar, with nothing, you not only give them food, which they don't deserve, but in grace you do more. You welcome them into your home. You welcome them into your family. You take them as your son or daughter. 
And you shower down upon them all the riches of your abundant grace. And that's what God has done for you in your redemption, in your salvation, in your adoption. He's adopted you into his family. He's made you his heir and a joint heir with his beloved son. And if you don't think that is the greatest thing that could ever happen to you as a son and daughter of Adam, then I don't think you really understand your salvation at all. Because there is nothing greater that I could say to you. There is no greater comfort that I could give you than to tell you that you are a child of God in Christ. As our text says, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir of God through Christ. There is nothing greater, beloved, that could ever be said about you or me than that we are children of God. So think about that. Nothing greater than that. Now let's move on here to the definition of adoption. And I'm going to do this in a rather different way. Because what I'm going to do is explain adoption by telling you what it's not. And I think that will help us get a better understanding of what it means to be adopted into the family of God. We need to distinguish well so that we can think well. And when we distinguish adoption from the other parts of the order salutis, from the order of salvation, that helps us to think well about our adoption and what it really means. So first of all, adoption is not regeneration. We we might tend to think of regeneration and adoption as being kind of synonyms. In regeneration, the Christian is someone who's been Born again from above by the Spirit, right? Just as Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And at first glance, it might seem that, well, adoption is just kind of another way of describing the new birth. But that's not so. These are two very distinct blessings of God's grace to us that do differ from one another, though we can say this, everyone who is born again is adopted, and everyone who has been adopted is born again. They're different, but they're not mutually exclusive of one another. Adoption deals with our status, taking us from being aliens, outsiders from God, to being his cherished children. It's a change in our status before God. We are not what we once were. But see, regeneration deals with really a change in our nature, changing us from being God-haters to lovers of God. Lovers of our Heavenly Father. Let me me just kind of try to give a little more clarity here with just a few more differences between regeneration and adoption. In regeneration, we're born again, or as the Puritans used to call, we close with Christ. But in adoption, the Spirit comes and abides in our hearts. In other words, regeneration is the Spirit's renewing our hearts But adoption is the Spirit inhabiting our hearts. He comes and dwells in us. Next, regeneration is not conditioned by faith, but adoption is. Regeneration enables us. It enables us to believe unto justification, unto adoption, because in our regeneration we are given faith. But... Once we have that faith, now we are adopted. So it, uh, it's, 
It's not conditioned by faith like adoption is. The faith comes before. One more difference here. <laughs> Regeneration makes us, makes us to be children of God. It, it conveys the principle of new life to us. Peter speaks of this in 1 Peter 1.23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God which lives forever. But adoption, regeneration makes us children of God. Adoption keeps us as the sons of God, as it confers new power of life. As I read earlier from John 1.12, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe on his name. So adoption is not regeneration, but also adoption is not justification. Uh, we would say that justification is the primary, the, the fundamental blessing of the grace of God to us in the gospel. Because it meets our most basic spiritual need. That is the forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with God. We could not be adopted without justification. But you see, adoption is a further blessing, a richer blessing. I believe this is key here. Because what adoption does is it brings us out of the courtroom. And in that courtroom, we were declared to be righteous by the judge because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. That's our justification. It's really kind of a legal aspect of our salvation in Christ. That's why we talk about the courtroom. But you see, adoption brings us out of the courtroom, into the family of God, into the household of God. That's our adoption. Okay? Let me put it this way. Justification is conceived in terms of law. It's a legal description. Adoption in terms of love. Justification sees God as judge. Adoption sees our God as father. Our Father. Now, of course, justification and adoption have a lot in common, but they still must be considered distinct privileges handled separately in theology. Justification involves this legal relationship, but we would say adoption involves a personal relationship. Where now, as those whom God has redeemed by Christ from our sin and misery, now we cry out what? Abba, Father. So remember this, beloved. Only Christianity makes God to be our Father. And then third, adoption is not sanctification. Though again, there, there's connections with this other part of our salvation, of sanctification. Uh, Thomas Brooks asserted that sanctification is simply living out the adoption and the sonship that is ours through the promises of God's words, as we've, again, already seen in John 1.12. But here's his quote. If you are a holy person, then from a child of wrath, you've become a child of God, a child of love. And from an heir of hell, you become an heir of heaven. From a slave, you are now become a son. And so the Puritans would hardly agree with J.I. Packer's explanation, his definition of sanctification being simply a consistent living out of our filial relationship, our childlike, our family relationship with our Father, our God. That's what the gospel brings us into. And through sanctification, we're brought into a fuller experiential awareness of our adoption that is ours in Christ. And it's in this way, in sanctification, that we are more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And, and therefore, we learn to grasp more fully what this adoption is. 
as we learn to live out its wonders in our lives. Beloved, one of the Puritans gives us this illustration of what happens in adoption to a believer. I've already kind of alluded to it. But think of it this way. First of all, you see yourself in the courtroom of God. And you're condemned. You are guilty to the bone and you know it. And you know that you deserve death, the worst possible death, because you're a dirty, rotten sinner. But you see, in the gospel, the judge himself, he pays your penalty. And he pays it in full. And he announces to you that you're free to go. You have no guilt, no condemnation at all. But our God does more than that when it comes to the doctrine of adoption. Because in our adoption, our God comes down from his throne of judgment. And he takes off his judicial robes, so to speak. And he comes up to you and he puts his arm around you. And he says to you, now you must come with me. You need to come to my house, to my home, to be a part of my family so that you can enjoy all that is mine as one of my own dear children whom I love with an everlasting love. Because you see, in adoption, our God becomes our Father who loves us. Brother and sister, in adoption, you're taken from the courtroom. You're brought into the family of God, though you don't deserve it. It's all of free grace. You know, adoption is that which, if we really understand adoption correctly, it should humble us to the dust. Thomas Watson put it this way. Adoption is a mercy spun out of the bowels of free grace. All by nature are strangers and therefore have no right to sonship. Only God is pleased to adopt one and not another. To make one a vessel for glory, another a vessel of wrath. And the adopted heir may cry out, Lord, how is it that thou wilt show thyself to me and not to the world? Thought about that? What's the answer? It's because it's all of grace. It's all of grace that he brings you into his family. And, And that's where the gracious doctrine of adoption, that's where it brings us. It brings us down to our knees before God saying, Lord, what have I ever done to deserve even one of the mercies I've known? I've done nothing. It's all of grace. It's all of God. Let's move on here to the final point, the power of adoption. Think of what this means for you, to be adopted into the family of God. You've been born again. God has delivered you out of the enslaving family of Satan. And by God's amazing grace, he's now transferred you into his own dear heavenly family. He calls you his child. You've been adopted into this glorious family. You're you're transferred from a, a state of sin and misery and now into a state of holiness and righteousness. Watson made this further comment. Think about this. 
If it were much for God to take a clod of dust and make it into a star, that's a pretty big deal, isn't it? How much more is it for God to take a piece of clay and sin and to adopt it for his heir? Think of that, beloved. A piece of clay and sin, that's what we were. And God has adopted us to be his heir. Meditate upon that. Now, often when we think about adoption, we we sometimes think about human adoption, right? Adopting a child into our family. There are some key differences between a human adoption and a divine adoption. William Ames uh, gives us four. First of all, he says, human adoption relates to a person who, as a stranger, has no right to the inheritance except through adoption. But believers, though by natural birth they have no right to the inheritance of life, are given the right because of rebirth, faith, and justification. In other words, in the Ordo Salutis, adoption comes after rebirth, faith, and justification. That's what we've said already. And therefore, we have a right. That's what we said there in 1 John 1.12. We have the right to become children of God. We have the right to adoption in all of its fullness. Second, human adoption is only an outward designation and a bestowal of external rights and privileges. But divine adoption is so real a relationship that it is based on an inward action and the communication of a new inner life and the bestowal of eternal rights, eternal privileges, eternal blessings that are given to us. And this this kind of follows on third. Human adoption was introduced because there were no natural sons, or at least too few natural sons. But divine adoption does not come from any lack, but rather it flows from abundant goodness, whereby the likeness of a natural son and the mystical union is actually given to the adopted son. There's only one natural son, right? Christ. But we're united to him by faith and all that is his becomes ours. And so in other words, what Ames is saying is that when God adopts you into his family, you really are his child. Period. And then fourth, human adoption is ordained so that the son may succeed the father in the inheritance. The divine adoption is not ordained for succession. But rather, it is ordained for participation in the inheritance with the Father. Because, as you know, the Father and the Son live forever. No beginning, no end. So that allows for no succession. But rather, what it does allow for is communion with them forever and ever in the eternal family of God. So think of what God has done for us in adopting us into his family, especially When you consider that while, you know, the heirs of people on this earth, they they don't even share that inheritance with other people, do they? Well, we all, as God's adopted children, we share in the same privilege. The same privileges that belong to all of God's children that belong because they all belong to Christ, who is our Savior. And there's no lack in this. Sharing our inheritance doesn't make it less. Because you see, our inheritance in Christ is infinite. It's beyond our imagination. Now, there are several great truths 
that we can find in our Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17. Things that we should meditate upon, things that we find comfort in and peace in. But I want you to consider what it says in John 17, verse 23, about the love that the Father has for you as his child. Because Jesus is praying to his heavenly Father, and he says this, you have loved them as you have loved me. Now, can you think of such a thing? I mean, can you really fathom such a thing? God loves you as much as he loves his only begotten son, the beloved son in whom he's well pleased. Now, I think what this does is it shows us how far our God is willing to go to reconcile us to himself, to bring us to himself. Think on how great that love is that the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. We who deserve his judgment, we who have dethroned him from our lives, we have spurned his love time and time again, we have defied his law over and over, we are the ones whom he loves. And he adopts into his beloved family. And so here is great assurance for you, great assurance for me, as a child of God, that God the Father has so loved us when we were bound in sin, when we were on our way to hell. And what made all the difference? What made that change in our lives? What made that change in our status before God? It was nothing in you or me. It was only because the Father loved us. Here's, here's another verse for you to meditate on. Jeremiah 31.3 God says to you, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Meditate on that, beloved. Your God says that to you. Your Father says that to you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. <clears throat> now, people of God, the love of God and our communion with God, that lies at the very heart of the doctrine of adoption. Think about this. God didn't save you just to show you that he could. He saved you because he loves you. And he wants you to spend eternity with him. Enjoying the riches of his grace forever. John Owen gives us five elements of adoption that make it clear what God has done in adopting us into his family. These are really short. First of all, you and I, we belonged to another family. To Satan's family. Second, there is a family which you and I have no right to belong to, and that's God's family. But third, there is an authoritative, legal, binding translation from one family to the other, and that's our adoption in Christ. You've been taken from this family, and you've been put in this family. It is binding. It is everlasting. And therefore, fourth, you and I are now freed from all the legal obligations of the family that you and I used to belong to. As Paul says in Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And then fifth, the fifth one is, and by virtue of our adoption, you and I are now invested with all the rights and privileges, with all the advantages, with all the blessings of our new family. That's really adoption in a nutshell. 
right there. What an amazing power of our triune God. And we see it in our adoption in Christ. Adoption is the gracious act of the Father whereby He chooses us for Himself. He calls us to Himself. He gives us the privileges and the blessings of being His child. God the Son earned those blessings for us by His propitiatory death and sacrifice upon the cross and through which you and I become children of God. As it says in 1 John 4.10, In this is love. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We're going to be celebrating that soon. And the Holy Spirit comes. What does He do? He applies the, the finished work of Christ to us. He changes us from being children of wrath, which we were by nature, into children of God by means of regeneration, uniting us to Christ by faith, working in us a new nature toward our God and Savior, sealing our sonship by that spirit of adoption. And He witnesses with our spirits what? That we are children of God. Romans 8.16 That witness of the Spirit shows us God's work of grace in our hearts and in our lives. The Spirit carries us to our Father. He testifies to us that this good and gracious God is now our Father. So that we not only cry out, Abba, Father, but we know, we are now assured that we are children of God and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we might also be glorified together. That's what we were promised in Romans 8, 16 and 17. So, beloved, let me bring this up. First sermon on adoption to a close with an assignment for you. Now you are all looking forward to this, I know, right? We need to think about, we need to meditate on what God has done for us in our adoption in Christ. And so what I want to do is encourage you to uh, read either the Westminster Shorter Catechism or the question 34, larger catechism, question 74, but also read the chapter 12 of the Confession of Faith, And then look up those scripture proofs. Read those as well. Take time to go over each line, each phrase of the confession, the catechism, the scripture, and then meditate upon it. Think about, ponder, consider what your adoption in Christ means to you. Ask the Spirit of God to help you. Get alone. Get away from all the distractions. Take some time to meditate on your adoption in Christ. This is not going to be a five-minute, one-time deal. Take this week. Do this. Keep after it. Work your way through our standards. The, the Chapter 12 of the Confession, the Catechism Questions. Look up those verses. Meditate upon the glorious promise of God to you in Christ. And see if this, this wonderful, precious, gracious, comforting doctrine of adoption... See if that doesn't bring joy to your heart, gladness to your soul. As our text says here, Galatians 4, verses 6 through 7, and because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir of God through Christ. Beloved, remember this. There is nothing greater that could ever happen to you 
There's nothing greater that could ever be said about you. And there's no greater comfort that you could find than this one thing, that you are a child of God in Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word, a word that we need so desperately each and every day, each moment. Speak to our very hearts and souls. Imprint upon us by your spirit, your truth, that we might find the great comfort, the great joy that is found in knowing that we are truly your children, that you have brought us out of the darkness into the light of your own dear son. You've not only given us mercy, but you've given us grace. You've taken us into the family. You've adopted us, and we truly and we really are your children, and there is nothing better that could ever happen to us in this life, and particularly as it implies for the life to come than to know that we are children of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.